Our passage this morning comes from 1 Samuel chapter 8, and before we get to our passage this morning, I'd just like to take a a minute to acknowledge the death of Pastor Tim Keller this past week. Uh, Many of you know who Tim Keller is, if you're from the United States, a well-known pastor, but his ministry spread well beyond the United States and throughout the world. He was the founding pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. He was also one of the co-founders of the Gospel Coalition, led many church planting networks, and uh, the Lord really used him uh, in a lot of people's lives through his books, through his preaching and writings, through his mentorship. Uh, I would count myself as being one of those people who his ministry had a big impact on. And so I was sad to hear the news this week, but also saw a quote by him that he said, death for the Christian makes their lives infinitely better. Death for the Christian makes their lives infinitely better, which I, I thought was a great quote and took comfort in that. And I also wanted to, to share uh, another quote by him that I just thought was, was good. And Christianity Today had a uh, tribute to him, and they used a quote that he was known to say. He said this, the gospel is this, that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. And this is the heart of the gospel. And so, friends, whatever else you take away from this worship service this morning, I pray that you will take this away today, that you would carry this in your hearts and minds as you go away from this place, that you are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than you ever dared hope. So... Back to the life of David, which we are not quite there yet. We're doing a series in the life of David. We're on sermon number two. We're not going to get to David today, but I promise we will meet him next week. And I hope you're keeping up as we go through 1 Samuel. I thought it would be good to say a little bit more this week about our theme verse for this sermon, uh, which is the Lord looks at the heart. In the midst of all of the sacraments that we were celebrating last week, I sort of uh, skimmed over that very quickly where the base of this theme comes from, but it's an idea that comes up again and again in the books of Samuel, and as you read along, you will see that this idea of people's hearts is raised again and again in First and Second Samuel. Where are their hearts? It plays an important part in David's life, this idea that the Lord looks at the heart. In fact, the verse itself comes from next week's passage, and it's it's said in reference to David himself. It's 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. The Lord does not look at the things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. I'll say that again. The Lord does not look at the things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And it's a good and humbling reminder to us as human beings that we don't always have our priorities straight. And the things that we value or the things that we think are the most important in this life aren't always in line with the way that God values and prioritizes things. And perhaps most especially, this comes into play when we are considering and evaluating other people. We are quick to size people up based on their external appearances. How tall they might be, how strong they are or athletic, how smart, how handsome, how beautiful, how they walk and talk, how they interact with other people. We so often place value on these things, the external appearance. 
We look at other people's gifts, whatever they are, and we make judgments about their character based on those gifts. Or we make assumptions about their worth based on how much we value that particular gift. I remember when I was just out of college, I was doing a youth ministry internship in Virginia Beach, Virginia, and I was living with several other guys who were also just out of college, so you can imagine what a mess that was, uh, literally and figuratively. And one of my friends that I lived with pointed out at one point, he said, you know, he said, we have a humor rivalry in this house. Uh, We don't even realize we're doing it, but we place such a value on how funny people are. And we would make assumptions about how good someone was at youth ministry based on the jokes they could tell. How funny were they? Were they the, the funniest person in the room was probably the best youth leader. And that's whether we would say it that way or not, that's how we tended to think about things. And he was right when I thought about it. He was right. Uh, We value things that don't really matter in God's economy. We look at people's gifts. And so this is what this verse is talking about in 1 Samuel, that people look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. These sorts of evaluations, they don't tell us about who a person really is or what's going on inside of them. And they don't tell us about where a person's heart is, which is what God is most concerned about. Is someone's heart inclined toward God? Are our own hearts inclined toward God? What sort of corrections do we need to have for our hearts to line up with his? These are questions that we should ask ourselves in prayer, ask God in prayer. Lord, how do we need to repent? How do our lives need to line up more and more with yours? So people look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Remember that as we go through this series. We are neither as wise or discerning as we like to think that we are. And so we do well to seek the Lord's guidance always, especially as we interact with other people, because it is God alone who knows what's in a person's heart, even our own, even our own. It's something to pay attention to as we see it play out again and again in David's life and as we consider its implications for us. So with all of that in mind, let's turn to our passage for today. We're going to be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 8. We're going to look at the whole chapter. We're going to be skipping around a little bit, but this is our main passage for this morning. And let's pray before we read today. Gracious Heavenly Father, we ask today that as we come to your word that you would bless to us this reading of your holy word. And that you would apply it to our hearts and to our minds. And that you would use it to form us more and more into the likeness of your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray all this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Israel asks for a king. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of his firstborn was Joel and the name of his second was Abijah. And they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, and they accepted bribes, and they perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel, they gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, You are old, and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, Give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you that they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. 
as they have done from the day that I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers, and he will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. And when that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. And then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us, to go out before us and to fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. And the Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. And then Samuel said to the Israelites, everyone go back to your own town. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So just a quick review from from last week, there are two verses that just help us understand what was going on in Israel when the prophet Samuel appears on the scene. The first comes from Judges 21-25, which we read last week. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And we talked about how that, that is sort of the perfect definition of sin, uh, right there. And then the second verse is this, 1 Samuel 3.1. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare, and there were not many visions. And both of these verses together show us the bleak picture of the state of Israel then, at least regarding the spiritual lives of the people. It's not that God was completely absent, but it's that these things were happening there, and people were doing their own thing. They were going their own way, and they weren't listening to the Lord. But things started to turn around with Samuel. And we see God start to fulfill his covenant promises to Israel or to continue to fulfill his covenant promises to Israel. He has not left them alone. And God raises up Samuel to lead them, to rescue them from their enemies, to bring his word to them once again. And God speaks to Samuel. And Samuel, even as a little boy, listens and responds to God saying, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And with Samuel, God begins this work of renewal in Israel. And through Samuel, the word of the Lord is no longer rare in Israel. And I love when we read through 1 Samuel, we see these exchanges between Samuel and God, and they're very conversational. There's this real back and forth between them. It it reminds me of the relationship that, that Moses had with God when we read through Exodus, where Moses and God would just have these conversations with each other and talk back and forth to each other. Or even the the relationship that God had with Abraham in the book of Genesis. Samuel had a similar kind of relationship with the Lord where they would just talk with each other. And he would hear the word of the Lord very clearly. 
There's a real intimacy between the two of them and an, an openness and an honesty that marks their talks. There might be some things for us to learn for our own prayer lives in observing how Samuel interacts with God. And last week we saw God call Samuel into his service as a young boy. And now just one week and a few short chapters later, Samuel is an old man in our passage today, near the end of his career as a prophet and as a judge. And in the meantime, we'll do this quick overview of his, his life and his leadership of Israel. In the meantime, he has achieved a fair amount of success in leading Israel. He's brought them to a place of relative peace and prosperity. He had led Israel to, to victory over the Philistines, their main rivals at the time. They were at peace with the Amorites and other people that they would often battle with. And there was also a sense of, of revival occurring as well. The Ark of the Lord, which, which signified God's presence with Israel, uh, had been captured by the Philistines, but it had been returned to Israel. And it says in chapter 7 that the people were turning back to the Lord. And Samuel called on them to get rid of their idols and to serve the Lord alone, the God of Israel. And the people did. They started to get rid of their idols, and they, their hearts were inclined towards the Lord. And good things were happening in Israel at that time. There was a sense of momentum about it all. But then we get to Samuel chapter 8, 1 Samuel chapter 8. And Samuel is an old man. And in his old age, things start to change again. And in some ways, we see history repeating itself. This time, it's Samuel's sons who are abusing their power, just like we saw Eli's sons had been doing before them at the very beginning of this book. And it's at this time that the elders of Israel come to Samuel and they ask for a king. And the reasons that they give have to do with all of the circumstances that we just mentioned. I don't know if you noticed this, but the first thing they say to Samuel is, Samuel, you are old. Who wants to get that accusation? (laughs) You are old. You can't lead us anymore. But not only that, your sons are corrupt. You have set them up in positions of leadership, and yet they are corrupt, and they are abusing their positions of power. And everybody knows it, including Samuel. And so the elders of Israel, they don't trust Samuel's sons to take over when he's gone. And so it seems like the Israelite elders are looking to take matters into their own hands. They want, they want some sort of assurance about the security of their future. Things have improved for them under Samuel, and they don't want to go back to the way things had been before. And so they come to Samuel, and they ask for a king. There's probably some truth in all of that reasoning, that these were things that they were concerned about. But as Samuel and the elders go back and forth about this, whether they should have a king or not, when we get to the end of our chapter, we find out that there's something else going on here. That what the Israelites really want, or a deep part of their motivation, what's going on in their hearts, is that they want a king like all of the other kings of the nations, so that they can be a nation like every other nation. In verses 19 and 20, this is what they say, we want a king over us, and then we will be like all of the other nations, with a king to lead us, and to go out before us, and to fight our battles. Israel wants to be like everyone else, and this is what gets them into trouble. The scriptures in in general are pretty ambivalent about Israel having a human king. It's not something that is seen as a necessity. It's not particularly encouraged. 
When the Israelites entered the promised land, God did not anoint a king right away over them, which seems like that would have been the time that it made the most sense to do so. But instead, God worked through the system of judges and of prophets to speak to his people. But at the same time, there's no specific prohibition against a human king for Israel. And in fact, we see in the book of Deuteronomy that there are requirements and expectations for Israel's kings that are laid out there. And we're going to look at those in just a minute. The problem for Israel is not so much that they are asking for a king in all. There's nothing certainly sinful just about that, the desire to have a king. But the problem is in their hearts. Because they're looking around at the outward appearance of all of the nations around them. And they're comparing themselves to them. And they say, look, they all have kings who lead them into battle, who fight their battles for them. We should all have kings who lead us into battle. We should be just like them. And as the Israelites look more and more at the outward appearance of the world around them and the nations around them, their hearts move farther and farther away from the Lord. The problem with Israel wanting to be like all of the other nations around them is that Israel was not meant to be like all of the other nations. They had been set apart as a people for God's purposes in this world. We see that this is true as far back as God's covenant with Abraham in the book of Genesis. But we see it a bit more clearly when God speaks about his relationship with Israel after he delivers them out of slavery in Egypt. And there God speaks to them as a people, and he's making his covenant with them, and he says, now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all of the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are themes that the Apostle Peter picks up on and writes about in the New Testament as well, applying it to the church and calling them a royal priesthood, calling us a royal priesthood. And the point both times is that God's people aren't meant to be just like everyone else. This isn't some self-righteous comment that we're making as if somehow we as God's people are better than anyone else. Uh, That's not the point here. We are no less sinful. It's just that we have been called according to God's purposes, and our lives are meant to reflect that truth. To show the rest of the world what living under God's gracious rule looks like in all of its goodness and humility and simplicity and joy. We think about the fruits of the Spirit there. That's what lives under God's gracious rule are meant to look like. Israel was not meant to be like every other nation. And along with this, Israel's king was not meant to be like the kings of all of the other nations. The king's main duty was not to lead his army into battle, not in Israel. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 through 20, it's a great passage that lays out for us the expectations of Israel's kings. We're going to look at that right now. Uh, Do we have that? There we go. He says this, When you enter the land that the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, Let us set a king over us like all of the nations around us. So God knew this was going to happen. It says, be sure to appoint over you a king that the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your fellow Israelites. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not an Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself 
or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. And when he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from the Levitical priests. It is to be with him and he is to read it all of the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all of the words of this law and these decrees and not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites and turn from the law to the right or to the left. And then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom, Israel. This is such a different picture of kingship than what most of us imagine when we imagine kings. Certainly different than the kings of the nations conducted themselves. Even differently than the kings of Israel actually conduct themselves, as we are going to find. They're not to have too many horses, which represented military might back then. So no big army. They're not to have multiple wives, something that was quite common back then. It was, it was a show of, of power and of strength of status for kings to have so many wives. They're not to have lots of wealth, not lots of silver and gold. And they're supposed to study God's word and to learn to obey and to revere him. They're not to think of themselves as better than anyone else. They're meant to live humbly and simply and faithfully. And there's nothing in here about leading anyone into battle. Their main responsibility, their main duty is to study God's law and to learn to obey and revere him and to lead the people to do the same. In this way, the king's main role in terms of his people was to set an example of righteous living, of faithful living before the people. And we see here, again, the the contradiction between looking at outward appearances and looking at the heart. The heart of Israel's kings were supposed to be inclined towards God first and foremost. And yet when we think about what makes a great king, when we think about the images we have in the culture around us, it's people with great military might, people with great wealth and riches, uh, people who, who have all of these things are what makes a good and successful king. But according to these guidelines, it would be someone who saw themselves as serving God's people under God's own gracious rule. This is perhaps why the Bible is so ambivalent about a human king for Israel, because in a very real sense, it is God himself who is meant to be Israel's king or ruler. This is another theme that runs throughout all of Scripture from beginning to end, that God wants to be with his people, to dwell with them, and to be their God. We see it as far back as the book of Exodus, where God tells the Israelites that he wants to live with them, to dwell with them, to be their God. And it's also the promise of Revelation 21, verse 3. Where God says again that he, they hear the voice from the throne and God says, I am going to be their God and they are going to be my people. What we see is that God desires for all people to be living under his gracious rule. You could even say that we see this all the way back to the beginning in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. That this is what God was doing with Adam and Eve before the fall. He was dwelling with them as their God and they were his people. This is what God is saying in response, uh, excuse me, to Samuel in response to Israel's demand for a king. Samuel is upset. He's feeling that his leadership has been unappreciated and rejected. And God says to him, no, it is not you that they are rejecting, but it is me as their king. 
It is me. And this is what they have done ever since I've led them out of Egypt in the Exodus. The Israelites aren't looking for the kind of king described in Deuteronomy. They don't want someone to live humbly and to study God's word. They want the pomp and the circumstance. They want the wealth and the displays of power because this, they think, will bring them status and power and influence as well. They want someone who is going to boldly lead them into battle against their enemies. And this kind of king is someone who people can put their trust in to protect them and to provide for them and even to save them. Someone they can point to and say, look, that's our king right there. This is someone who will make them proud to be Israelites. These were all things that the Israelites had looked to God to before. But now they want a physical, tangible person that they can look to fulfill these roles for them. It's the kind of a king that might possibly take God's place in people's lives. It's interesting that it's not very long after this religious revival uh, happened in Israel that we see this start to happen. The people had just destroyed all of their idols to serve God alone, and now just one chapter later, the people are turning back uh, and saying that they want a king to put their trust and their hope in. And I think it speaks to our human tendency to put our trust in anyone or anything other than God alone. John Calvin, uh, the, the, the Reformed theologian, uh, had this great quote where he says that the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. And every day from our mother's womb, we are making idols. Other things, other people to worship other than God. There is something in us that does not want to worship God the way that we are called to do. So Samuel goes back to the people and he is very clear about what's going to happen if they get a human king, that it is not going to go well for them. He tells them that it is going to mean that they uh, have a king who enriches himself at their expense, who's going to force them to work and to fight and is going to take all of their land and food and money to enrich himself and his assistance. And yet the people respond to Samuel saying, no, no, we still want a human king. This is what we want. It reminds me, uh, and so Samuel, God says to Samuel, give them what they want. Give them what they want. It reminds me of a a quote from C.S. Lewis in The Great Divorce where he says, in the end, there are two kinds of people. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. We can submit to God's gracious rule in our lives or God might allow us what we want and give us over to our own desires so that we can reap the consequences from it. It's a principle that I think most teachers and coaches and and parents and teachers know that sometimes you have to let people under you make their own mistakes and pray that they learn from them and will come back to what is true and good. And so God allows the Israelites to have their king with all of the consequences that is going to come from it. It's not long after this, at the beginning of chapter 9, that we meet Saul, the son of Kish, for the first time. And Saul is Israel's first king, who will ultimately be rejected by God for the role. But before we find that out about Saul, what we find is that Saul looks the part of a king. If you are judging by the outward appearance, Saul will win an election every time. It says this about him, He was as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel. And he was a head taller than everyone else. I mean, 
I have to confess, I wouldn't mind being described this way, right? Because truth be told, I care more about outward appearances than I like to admit. I think that this would bring me some sort of status. I want people to think this way about me. We're not told much else about Saul at this point. We're just, we're not told if he's a good guy or a bad guy. We're not told why God has chosen him as king. The only thing that we're told is that he is going to deliver Israel from the Philistines. And all that we really know about him is that he is tall and handsome. And so Saul is made the first king of Israel. And this starts the cycle of ups and downs for Israel and Judah under their monarchy that will go on for hundreds of years. As for Saul himself, as time goes on, his flaws become more and more apparent, and we see how he chooses to follow his own way rather than being obedient to the Lord, until eventually God moves on to David, a man described as being after God's own heart. And in the midst of all of this, Samuel, the great prophet who has become old, gives his farewell speech to the people in 1 Samuel chapter 12 reminding them again of the evil that they had done by asking for a king and choosing to put their faith in a human institution rather than in God himself. And the people at this point acknowledge that it's true and they ask Samuel to pray for them so that they would not perish. And so Samuel responds to them and he leaves them with a word of grace rather than a word of condemnation. He says this, For the sake of his great name, The Lord will not reject his people because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. But be sure to fear the Lord and to serve him faithfully with all your heart. Consider what great things he has done for you. Yet if you persist in doing evil, both you and your king will perish. This is a good word to God's people in every time and place. And I like uh, what the pastor Eugene Peterson has to say about Samuel's speech here. He says this, Samuel articulates one of the most fundamental features of the biblical message. No evil, no sin in itself can separate us from God's gracious mercy toward us. Nothing we do puts us outside of the power of God's grace to forgive and to reconcile. A thousand years later, Jesus embodied what Samuel preached. Do not be afraid. Yes, you have sinned, but do not let your sin paralyze you with guilt. Don't let your sin dupe you into thinking that you are irredeemable. And don't suppose for a minute that God has called it quits on you. It's God's business to save you, and God will not give up. It takes us back to our Tim Keller quote from the beginning of our time together this morning, that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, and yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Friends, the good news does not rest on our ability to be faithful to God, but in the reality that in Christ, God has been faithful to us. The Israelites cried out for a king, and they got Saul, and then they got David, and then they got Solomon, and then they got all of the other kings that we don't know nearly as well, but all in anticipation of God sending his son, because he is the ultimate answer to Israel's prayer and to ours. He is our true king, who did not enrich himself at our expense, but laid down his own life for our benefit. So may we look to him as the only one who can save us 
and who does. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, forgive our wayward hearts. Our hearts that want to look anywhere else but to you for our salvation, for our protection, for our provision. Lord, we pray that you would call us back to yourself once again. Lord, would you convict us of our sin? Would you show us the ways that we need to repent? Lord, would you give us leaders who look to you, who study your word, who lead us in your ways? And Lord, as always, would you hold your son up in front of us, reminding us that he is our true king, And help us to put our trust and our faith in him alone. We ask this all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.